Alright. Today is uh, August the 8th, 1997. I started this journey to get here to Minneapolis on July 9th, 1977. It's been a long trip, uh, but I'm glad to have arrived. It was an interesting day, July 9th, 1977, uh, because when I went out to get my two six-pack of beer, uh, I'm driving down the road in my uh, station wagon, and uh, my two kids are in the backseat of the car, and I notice that there's a helicopter flying over the car, and I thought, something must be happening down the road. And then <laughs> the next thing I notice is that there's three police cars behind me with lights flashing and sirens going, and I was certain something was happening down the road, but I was even more convinced that something was happening down the road, because when I got to the intersection, it was blocked off. And there were more cars with policemen with their weapons out and shotguns. And my vehicle came to a stop, and then I noticed that I was the one who was boxed in. You know? I was the one who was boxed in. And um, that was the last roadside for me in the process of getting here. See, I equate this process with um, road signs. And that road sign said, end of the road. That was the last stop on that particular road. Um, I was uh, pulled out of the car. I was arrested for uh, nine felonies in uh, the state of California. And that was uh, in July of 1977. Uh, the road didn't start there. And certainly the road map uh, 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 and the road signs that I experienced didn't start there. It started 16, 17 years old. And um, with, with uh, um, uh, a, a pattern of drinking and drug use, that led me into conflict with the law, long time uh, uh, in coming, but uh, between 16 and 18, um, my style of interacting was headbutting. I mean, I just was, I was, I was very thick where it came to the law. And um, I went through most of the things that you've, uh, uh, you've heard about. I went through most of the trauma that you heard about. I, I, and I tried the various techniques to, uh, um, uh, to make things different. I went from alcohol to scotch. I went from scotch to wine. Um, I uh, I moved. Um, I joined the army. That was a good solution in the Vietnam era. And um, anyone in the room know how badly they wanted people in the uh, 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 in the Vietnam era. I managed to get myself thrown out of the uh, uh, army uh, for my drinking behavior and uh, things that I did. It never dawned on me that when I drank, that bad things happened. It never dawned on me. Or if I, or if it did, the sense was that. Um, I could find a way to whip these bad things and make good things come out of them. And um, so this trick led me uh, into a marriage and then eventually to a move to California and eventually into Judge Emerson's courtroom. Now, this wasn't this. This was still one of the road signs. Judge Emerson had me in front of him uh, for a DUI, and he took enough time to take me in the chambers of his court and say to me, uh, he asked me about my mom and my dad, and he asked about their drinking behaviors and whatnot. He was obviously someone who was enlightened. And he uh, talked to me as he truly cared, and he sent me to AA. Well, I went to an AA meeting at uh, Northrop. Um, I went to one AA meeting uh, one week before I was due back on court for a probation violation for not going to AA meetings. And what I found out was they were talking about God. They were talking about God, and right away, in my righteous indignation, I said, well, you can't force me to change my religion. I'm a Catholic. 
Yeah, who does he think I'm not going to be this alcoholic? And I, I went back to court and I told him that. Now, that'll give you an idea. That'll give you an idea about how far down the scale things have gone. You know, when you tell the judge, you know, you know, I, I'm not going to change my religion. He says, let me see if I can give you a spiritual experience. And he sent me off to the L.A. County Jail for the weekend. Now, that was a spiritual experience. <laughs> you know? And um, I want you to know that was a road, that was a road sign. You know, that was a road sign. But I'm not real good at reading road signs when I'm driving at 70 or 80 miles an hour through life and I got my blinders on and I don't want to see things, you know. I wish I had seen that road sign. And the way I dealt with that road sign was the way I dealt with most things in my life. I found a way around it. Uh, I waited until the judge went on uh, vacation. I hired the guy. I had an attorney who was going to be sitting as the judge pro tem and he dismissed the case and I picked up the phone and I called the probation officer and I told him what a jerk he was because the probation had been dismissed and I was free to go on my way. What I didn't realize was that was going to be one of the last road signs before the real serious consequences set in. And those serious consequences led me eventually to bankruptcy, led me eventually to a divorce, and led me eventually to uh, that moment of arrest in Anaheim, California on July 9, 1977. Now, I never planned to um, commit uh, crimes that will, could put me in prison conceivably for 50 to 60 years. You see, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of guy. But then again, I never planned the divorce, and I never planned the bankruptcy, and I never planned the visit to Judge Emerson's court either. None of those things were ever planned. End of the road. That was the sign. End of the road. I went uh, to the Orange County Jail. And I was in jail for about three months and I got bailed out. And my uh, attorney called me into his office and he asked me to read the police report and tell him what was accurate and what was inaccurate. And what I did was I read the report and I, everything that had happened happened in a blackout. So I couldn't tell what was accurate or inaccurate. But at the back of the um, uh, police report was the FBI rap sheet, you know, with all of the crap from 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. And something happened in that man's office that day. And what happened was, as I went down the list and I read all of the interactions, unsuccessful interactions with police, right? in between them were things like losses of jobs, losses of friendships, uh, the bankruptcy, the divorce. And it all came clear that the common thread between all of these things was my abuse of alcohol. It took me to that point in that attorney's office. I picked up the phone, I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I became willing to take direction. For the next two years, I um, followed the direction of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, primarily the old-timers in the Garden Grove Club of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were willing to be patient and tolerant, and they were profound. They said things like, sit down and shut up. You know? They said, go to meetings. And I'd say, you don't understand. I said, I need to get an attorney and they'd say, read the big book. You know? And I'd say, you really don't understand. I need to pay the bail bond for next year's. And they'd say, work the steps. And I used to think that they were all brain damaged because they could only talk in three or four word sentences. <laughs> what I didn't realize for the first ten years of my sobriety was that I was brain damaged and that's why they talked in three or four word sentences. <laughs> so, okay. That was a profound revelation. All right. Um, I fought the case for two years. I had been given a guilty plea where I would have served three years and gotten a two. I would have served two years out of three, but no, the law changed and I thought I could fight the thing. So I withdrew the guilty plea and I wound up with a six-year sentence and I served four. I had four years in a state prison. 
Now, what's my qualification to stand here before you today? My qualification to stand before you today is to tell you that even at that time, my higher power was laying out provision for me. Even at that time, all right? Um, what I mean by provision is I went to, I, I honestly believe that the successful conclusion of this whole thing was going to be I was going to be found not guilty, God and myself were going to triumph, and we were all going to do okay. What I didn't realize was that had that process happened, this day would never have happened. Because I would have done what I had done the 20 years before. I would have said, that was a close one. And it would have taken me about six months after nine felonies to have started back again. But I would have started back again. When I lost the case, I want you to know it's a really profound experience to have the district attorney lay out all your character defects. There's something really traumatic to that process, and the jury's sitting there nodding, you know. I want you to know, I knew, I had this spiritual awakening sitting there at that defense table. Uh, within 20 or 30 minutes after the jury was selected, I knew I was convicted. It was a five-day trial. It was a five-day They were already starting to nod their head then, you know, with the opening statements. And I thought, I said, I made a mistake. I don't think I made a mistake now. It was a long, difficult road. And that was the way he got my attention. He used his two-by-four. That's the way he got my attention. On the way out to Chino in the uh, uh, state-owned jewelry, um, what they give you is they give you custom chains, you know, and, and leg irons and, and, and handcuffs. I'm sitting next to some guy with tattoos. I couldn't, I couldn't find very many places on his body he didn't have tattoos. I think even his eyelids were tattooed. You know what I'm saying? I'm not like these people. The truth of the matter was I was like those people. Because I would lie, cheat, or steal to get whatever I needed, whenever I needed it. And there were no boundaries. There were none whatsoever. Um, I arrived out in Chino. I was eventually sent up to the California Men's Colony. And while I was in uh, prison, I had an opportunity to get involved in an educational program. I had quit high school. I quit high school because um, I was convinced that I was stupid. I flunked algebra and uh, Latin and English in my freshman year. And that had been predicted for me by a family member. And so I naturally followed through with the prediction. I showed them what I could do with that, you know. And the long and the short of it was, uh, I, I started back to school, and something happened. It was an awakening. And I found out I could think. And I found out that I could enjoy the process of learning. And then um, when I finished the associate degree, I had a chance to discover that maybe, maybe there was just something that good that could come out of this. I didn't know what, because I really felt that my life was over and done with. And it was at that point. My life was over and done with in terms of what I knew. Um, I had an opportunity while I was in prison to finish a uh, bachelor's degree. Now, I could tell you, that doesn't sound like a miracle to you, but when you're in prison and you don't have any money and you need $5,000 for tuition and you get an $1,800 Pell Grant and then the California Student Aid Commission gives you $3,250 scholarship, that's a miracle, let me tell you, all right? And I finished uh, a bachelor's degree. I came out of uh, prison with um, this bachelor's degree and not much in the way of hope as far as uh, the stigma of a felony conviction. I didn't know what I was going to do. Within a year, um, an opportunity opened up to go to um, a master's degree program at Pepperdine University, and I got involved in that uh, master's degree program, which eventually led to... Uh, admission to a doctoral program in uh, San Diego at the uh, University, at United States International University. And I finished that uh, uh, PhD program last year. And um, it's been a long, arduous route here. 
And the way that he has directed that route is that um, he's removed he's removed the shortcomings as they've gone along. Uh, he's removed my failings as well. And some of them he hasn't removed. Some of them he's just highlighted for me. And he uses a bold yellow highlighter so it stands out about how much the, uh, what kind of shortcomings I really have. So unlike most of you who set out early in your career to do the right thing, I didn't follow that. I kind of backed in. I came in the other way. Yeah. And um, this process humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Be careful of what you ask for, because you just might get it. You know, I never set out for these things to happen, but I'll be darned if I didn't get the better end of the deal. Thank you. And I would like uh, to uh, ask uh, several people to come up and share uh little two or three, four-minute talks that would uh, to highlight step number seven. But thank you for the opportunity to come and talk to you. George M., would you come up, please? Thank you. Thank you. I'm George. I'm an alcoholic. I'm grateful to be sober since uh, April 24th, 1978. That's Texas tradition. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's kind of shocking to be asked to talk about, uh, step seven. I've been sober a long time. And, uh, one day at a meeting, uh, in, in the Preston group in Dallas, we, uh, do a step a month as it's, uh, in our, in our little gray book that comes out of AA. And, uh, it was, uh, on the sixth step and seventh step. And, uh, I began to think, you know, what are the, uh, what am I really working on in the seventh step? And, uh, I asked myself, what are the biggies? You know, what are the biggies of the character defects? And, uh, and I said, well, let's see, it's, uh, fear, dishonesty, resentment, and self-centeredness. And, uh, fear I, follows me around, uh, Fear right now, you know, nervous that I'm going to not pull this thing off straight. I'm going to say something that will mar my character somehow up here. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was at that very same meeting that uh, I got a key on uh, selfishness and self-centeredness. And uh, part of the uh, fear of speaking shyness and all those things that I thought were... Uh, Humility, you know, it's it's a really a false humility, and it's really a lack of of uh, opinion about myself, lack of uh, of esteem, self-esteem, lack of self-worth. And uh, there was a, a fellow at that meeting uh, that I, it was a friend for a long time, but uh, he was sort of a, a a scholarly type of fellow, and he was I. I was interested in the philosophers years ago when I was drinking because they were going to give me the answer to uh, God and some of these other mysteries of life. At any rate, uh, he was talking about a philosopher I'd never heard of named uh, Spinoza, which probably, the guy probably qualifies for this program because his philosophy, uh, as, as he related in this meeting, was uh, on, uh, on shyness. You know, working on, uh, on getting out of shyness. And, uh, and that was a character of, uh, selfishness and self-centeredness. And, uh, his uh, comment was that when we have something to share, 
and uh, and if we don't share it, you know, with somebody, that is really being selfish and uh, not speaking when we feel we have something to say to a group is being selfish and self-centered. It's it's not false humility to uh, you know be be quiet. And I was brought up in a sense of you know kids are supposed to be quiet. And we had one of those dinner tables where you didn't talk, you, you ate. It was a Hungarian German type of dinner table. Yesterday I heard it was the Irish people do the same thing that you just sit there and eat. And it's a serious time, and I guess that's a thread that goes on in uh, in alcoholic families. Uh, I. Uh, you know, thinking about this seven step, I breezed through the uh, earlier steps in my early sobriety. I had a pushy sponsor, and uh, when I in about three months I was uh, at step six and seven. That's pretty short in the big book, and so I rested on step seven for a long time and really thinking about what is this uh, this humility stuff all about. And uh, and later I got to reading in the twelve and twelve about humility, and there's a uh, there's a, a, a paragraph in there. It's at the top of the page on the right-hand side as the book is open. And it's 12 and 12 and the seven step. I can't quote it exactly. But uh, I read it so many times. And But there's a, something in there about pain. Uh, pain is the admission price to this new life. And in this new life, we get humility. and uh, And we want more of it. And, uh, you know, I keep rolling that around my head. What is this humility commodity? It's, it's elusive, you know. When I have it, I, uh, uh you know, it just feels good. And, and I, I can't brag about it, you know. It just, it just, uh, <laughs> it, you know, I was going to volunteer to talk about humility anyway, and Kevin asked me to talk about it. Uh, well, at any rate, I blew myself out of my train of thought. Um, uh, but going on to maybe some of these other four biggies about, uh, I talk, talked about self-centeredness, but something about uh, dishonesty. You know, I've uh, really tried to be a lot more, uh, you know, if I have feelings about people, to tell them. And uh, I, I was sort of a, a dropout in relationships and... Uh, and I, I, one of our old, old time alcoholic members at the Preston Group in Dallas has, uh, sent his daughters to college to be therapists and they're, they've been in this a long time. They follow the A program real closely and sometimes uh, I go to this lady to, just to have a, a mother image in my life, you know, to give me the things that my mother never told me from a, an educated mind. And, uh, and, and this person has really learned to care about me and, uh, and I suffered through a divorce here uh, in the last few years. And a couple of years ago when I was in New Jersey, I, I had the bad news of my my former wife just moving away out of the state altogether. And that really was a blow because she was nowhere near. But I, get, I got over that. But uh, uh, at any rate... Uh, Oh well, I apologize. Uh, oh, and, and the therapist encouraged me to to talk about my feelings, and uh, so that in uh, in these newer relationships, uh, she'd encouraged me to uh, you know she'd ask like, "Do you think she's pretty?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, 
Did you ever tell her? No. You know, macho guys don't tell girls they're pretty or shy guys or whatever. And, you know, you tell her she looks nice or so forth and, no. So I started to do that. And it's amazing what I learned, you know, in the last year or two, in the last year primarily, that I never knew in my whole life is to, you know, when I feel something, say it. Especially in relationships. And uh, I passed that idea on to some of my doctor colleagues that uh, flying back from Austin to Dallas, sitting with one of the doctors on our staff after one of these little golf tournaments, and he was he was a child of a son of an alcoholic parent. Uh, I didn't know that, but you know how conversations go on an airplane. I found out a lot about him. His and his mother committed suicide, and on and on. He had a real strong history of you know families, uh, alcoholic family, and so I. Uh, he was talking about his wife and kids, and I asked him, do you ever tell your wife she's pretty? No, you know, same thing that the therapist gave me. And he went home and told her some nice things and related to me later, you know, how it uh, improved his relationship. So uh, that's what I pass on to you. Tell whoever is next to you that they're pretty if you think so. and and, and if, But don't be too honest if you don't think they're pretty. <laughs> Next person I asked to speak is Jessica C. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm an alcoholic and addict. My name is Jessica. And I only have 18 months clean, so I guess this will be the perspective of somebody in early sobriety on step seven. Um, when I was working my steps, I was told that when I did four and five, it would kind of pave the way for six and seven, and it did. Um, when I looked over all the trouble I had gotten into at different times of my life and the wrongs I had committed and such, there was definitely a common thread that ran through that, and that thread was lying, cheating, and stealing. If I had lied, cheated, and stealed, I wouldn't have gotten in hardly any trouble at all. <laughs> and, you know, it was inescapable to me as I was talking to my sponsor going over this step, you know, that if I didn't do things that I had to hide, I wouldn't get into hardly any trouble. And so when I got to the seventh step, I knew that some of the things I had to ask to be removed was my tendency to lie, cheat, and steal. And... um I guess I still am in the seventh step. For me, when I do my steps one, two, and three in the morning, I try and turn my life and over to care of a power greater than myself. I also ask that power to, for today, guide my thinking and actions in such a way that my character defects won't be active. Um, and I would say that since I've been in recovery, he's helped me with that because I don't do most of the things I used to do. Um, not that I'm cured or anything like that, but there have definitely been some changes. And my most successful change has been with lying. You know, I just kind of, I'm just going to say a couple of things about my own personal commitments to getting rid of some of these defects and then I'm going to sit down. Um, but my, my most successful one has been with lying. When I first went into treatment, they told me if I lied, I would relapse. And I had a couple of things I wanted to lie about right there in treatment that, that I was doing. Not using, but a couple other things. And um, I couldn't understand what one thing had to do with the other, and I just 
thought, you know, not using as one thing, and this is something else. And the more I hung around AA, the more I decided, you know, how to admit that, you know, everybody said the same thing, and I really should be listening. So there came a point for me when I just made a commitment that under no circumstances was I going to lie about anything. And I still won't do that today. Um, you know, if my if I'm on the phone with with you and I want to get off because I'm tired of talking to you or I just feel I need to be doing something, I won't say my other line is ringing. You know, I used to love to do that. Got to go. My other line is ringing. Well, you know, even just little things, um, I just won't lie. And what I found is that the more I don't lie, the more I don't need to lie. You know, I really don't need to say my other phone is ringing if I feel I need to go grocery shopping. Um, so, you know, that's really helped me. My personal commitment to just not lying has helped me, I think, in some ways, um, make my life better. And, uh, the other thing that I try to do personally for me to help with, you know, my character defects, and sometimes I get a little blurred as to what's the footwork and what God's supposed to do for me. I get confused. Um, cause I don't know that he's gonna come down with a big apple core from the sky and he's gonna core out my defects, so I sometimes feel like I need to be doing footwork. Um, and the other thing that I have a commitment to is to let other people get their own way a lot. And I, I actually have a sponsee now, and she said to me, um, don't you ever want to get your own way? And I've said to her, I said, for me in recovery, it's imperative that I don't get my own way. Because before I was in recovery, I was so selfish. I mean, very selfish and very self-centered. And how to have my own way. And that is definitely one of my character defects. So that I've just tried to make a personal commitment to, I feel like I'm recovering if other people are getting their own way. Some kind of progress has occurred for me. So that's all I have. Thank you. Steve F. Hi, I'm Steve, alcoholic, addict. Hi. Thanks, Kevin, for asking me. Um, I see the fifth, sixth, and seventh steps as being a, a recapitulation of the first three steps in this program. Um, in the first and fifth steps, we admit something is wrong. In the second and sixth steps, we realize that there's help available. And in the third and seventh steps, we ask for help. In the first three steps, those those are the steps that I used to try and stop getting high every day. Now, I didn't know I was doing those steps, but looking back, that's that's what I was doing. Um... And then once you sober up, literally, I mean, get the drugs out of your system, which for me fortunately happened in treatment because I don't know that I could have done it on my own by going to AA meetings. Um, once I got the drugs out of me, I was left with a whole litany of maladaptive survival skills which I had developed over many years of getting high. And those were my survival skills. The woman who just was up here was talking about lying, cheating, and stealing. And that was a, that's a really, that's what you need to do if you're going to do what I was doing all those years and hope to keep getting high. You need to lie about it and you need to cheat people and you need to steal. At least I did. 
Um, but then I was left with a sober guy who only knew how to lie, cheat, and steal. And Kevin was talking about some of his criminal background. Well, I have a criminal background, too. And when I got accepted into medical school and I got that fat envelope, I can't tell you how happy I was when I got that fat envelope in the mail. That was my, I just was beaming. And then I was reading through all the fat stuff in there. And I, I read every little, everything I wanted to read. I didn't want to let one little thing go by without being able to savor it. And then I got to a letter which said that if you want to take a year off between, it was a form letter, it wasn't to me personally, if you want to take a year off between college and medical school and go out and do anything, it doesn't have to be medical related, you can work in McDonald's if you want to, we'll hold a place for you in the following year's class if you just want to take a break and you'll be guaranteed a place you know, the next year. Um, the only thing we ask is that you don't get convicted of a felony. And all of a sudden, oh, I, oh, everything, I was just in despair because I had been convicted of at least one felony. And I just saw my, my, I, I, I felt like, well, this was another cruel joke which has been played on me. You can't become a doctor if you've been convicted of a felony. Fortunately, I had told the dean of admissions most of my story and he knew about all this stuff but still here was this letter which sounded like maybe this guy can you know <laughs> um, and been kind of leading me along and I was terrified one of the things which I had committed to not doing anymore was lying cheating and stealing and um, um, I had I felt some relief that everybody, you know, the people at the medical school who needed to know about my background knew that I didn't have to go to them and say, you know, I've got something to tell you, I'm a recovering drug addict, anything like that. They, uh, we contacted the Board of Medical Practice in the state of Minnesota, and they, they said we can't promise you a license when you graduate, but having had a felony conviction will not preclude a license automatically. They can use it to preclude, to say we won't give you a license because of this felony conviction, but it's not required that they do that. And so with, with that, I took that as a, as a go ahead, go to medical school and come see us when the time comes. And it was, it was a really, uh, talk about feeling humble and talk about feeling like I have Placed my future in the in the hands and goodwill of other people. Um, I went ahead and went to medical school, and then first year of you know, an internship at the end of the year, applying for a license, had to. You know, I wasn't about to lie to the board of medical practice or the DEA, and I checked off all the right wrong boxes. You know, <laughs> you know the twenty some odd questions, and have you answered yes to any of these questions? Please explain. And um, I hate doing that. I've had to do that so many damn times, and it's humiliating to call up hospital accreditation people and call up you know, God knows who and say, well, "Yeah, I've been convicted of a felony," and um, yeah, you know, it's it changes people's opinion of me. But I don't like doing that. But I, I made a commitment to not do those things which I 
used to do more of. I mean, I can't say I'm a pristine person, but um, and I had to give a whole lot of documentation and a whole lot, write a whole lot of letters. And well, they didn't care what I, letters about that I wrote. They wanted to hear from other people, and um, I ended up getting a, a non-stipulated license, and I ended up getting my DEA registration without any problems. Um, but I, I, I'm glad that I did the right thing and didn't try and cover any of it up or didn't try and get my record expunged and feel like I'm lying when I, you know, I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And um, it w worked out for the best and the best piece of advice I always give people is never lie about anything. Don't cover anything like that up. Um, and I don't feel like my shortcomings have been removed. Um, um, I mean, you can certainly talk to my wife. Um, I, I I know that they haven't been removed, and I don't think that they'll ever, been remo ever be removed. I, I, I always will have the capacity to do those things which I've done before. All that I ask is that I don't do them. Um, and um, thanks for asking me to speak. We have a couple of minutes left. Would anyone like to come up and share on step number seven, please? Your experience. Thank you. Morning. I'm Dick. I'm an alcoholic. I think for me, this whole program being a spiritual program uh, causes me to, to reflect into my heart so much more than into my head. Part of the trouble I had getting sober was thinking that if I could understand something, I could do it. And I find that by believing, I learned to understand. And the simple concept of changing my attitude from one of rigid thought process, intellectualizing, to believing, and that step saying coming to believe, and then having the awareness that there was something beyond me, that was greater, allowed me to find this step uh, very beneficial in my daily life. I had a wonderful sponsor, um, Father Joe, and he nurtured me and loved me enough so that I could learn to love myself. And as he nurtured and loved me, he taught me things that God loved me and that the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous allowed me to be the person that I wanted to be, be that good or bad. He also taught me that not every character defect was bad. Basically, that the weakness that I saw could be my strength. The fact that I was an alcoholic, I was ashamed of. Today, I'm proud of it. That's my identity. That's who I am. If you don't accept me as an alcoholic, you don't accept me. Because I am an alcoholic. The way I work the seventh step is on a daily basis. Every morning saying to God, God, do those things for me that you want me to be. Very simple, but very direct. And then I go out and do it. You know, I think a couple of things come to my mind. Uh, Gandhi has a little slogan that he had in a statement that uh, nothing we do is very important, but it's important that we do it. Shakespeare has one. Nothing is right or wrong, but thinking will make it so. When I thought I was bad, I was bad. When I came to believe that I was good, I had good. If you want to feel good, do good. Those are the things that are in my heart that I want to have come out on a daily basis. 
asking God to remove those defects of character that cause me to be less godlike are the things that I pray for on a daily basis. Humbly asking him. Humbly asking God to help me. God, would you please help me? The significance that that meant to me, I don't think I'll ever be able to relate to another human being. My sponsor died approximately four years ago. And approximately three weeks before he died, on February 23rd, I read a passage about John Newton from a book that he had given me. Now, John Newton was a slave captain. And in this little paragraph, it talks about that he was a despicable man in a despicable trade. That he's slave captain bringing these people across in swallow and bondage into a life of slavery. And at some point in his life, he made the decision that he just couldn't do it anymore. He was a wretched man in a wretched trade. And he made a commitment to change his life. And he devoted himself to God. He asked God's forgiveness. God forgave him. And John Newton became a very famous Methodist minister. At least I believe it was Methodist. I think it's true. Anyway, a clergyman. And he's the man that wrote Amazing Grace. I read that February 23rd, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday night. And that Tuesday night I called my sponsor who had moved away. And I said to Joe, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I have found God's grace. And from that time, my life has continued to grow. Through the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, having the courage, somebody made the comment about I needed to get up and talk. This is for me. This is for me. For me and my God. I'm doing the best I can. Somebody said about qualifying. I qualify because I'm a human being who's trying to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. The excitement and the joy that I feel living today is beyond anything in my wildest imagination. And I come here with the idea that I want to grow, that I want to be a better man, a gentler, kinder, softer gentleman. And God allows me to do that by taking the risk of standing up here and shaking in my boots saying these things to you. But I believe that this program does work and I'm willing to do those things that are necessary to keep me sober today and to help me grow tomorrow. This is a wonderful, wonderful way of life. And I thank each and every one of you for being here. As a way of closing this meeting out, from the uh, big book of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Mike. Creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen.